This is Continuum Drag, a weekly podcast revisiting television, sci-fi, fantasy, and everything in between. This week, Star Cops, episodes three and four. Commander Spring, I have made a momentous discovery. Look, it is of profound significance to the whole of mankind. It's one of your father's control panels. But do you see it? I'm sorry, what am I looking for? The threat. I don't understand. The invisible worm that flies in the night. Welcome to Continuum Drag, the podcast available on intelligent listening systems. I'm Luke, here with my co-host Jordan. What's real, Jordan? I have a question back for you. What are you, a groundsider? A groundsider? I am a groundsider, as a matter of fact. Mm -hmm. We're all groundsiders. That's the sad world we live in. It's almost 2027. We're still not in space. I know. Did you realize, I, I saw something somewhere that the lead character in this, like, given his age on the show, he was probably born in, like, 1987 or something. Oh, that's weird. To think. I never really thought about that. So he's, he's not that far something, off like, I can't remember. Something like that. So we're, like, he's, like, slightly younger than us. <laughs> that's weird. We could be star cops, Luke. I mean, but for the grace of God, we could be star cops. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, this week, before we get into it, we are joined by a guest on the podcast, Jeff Thanks for joining us here. Thanks for having me. Now, uh, the audience may not know this, or probably won't know this for the most part, but Jeff is uh, is a big reason Continuum Drag got off the ground. He uh, was at Astrolab. He helped get us start going by uh, getting us in there to start recording. So Jeff's a big part of the the history of our podcast. So I can't believe it's taken us this long to have you on, considering what a what a founding member you are. How oh, well, I, I appreciate. Uh being on so it's always, always a nice excuse to talk to you and jeff i think you're our first guest that is smoking on the podcast <laughs> i like it it makes us feel like it's it's the 1960s we're all just sitting back having a scotch and a cigarette it's a very casual feel now i'm not a smoker myself but i i enjoy seeing it is, the, is this not when like that show was made like in this atmosphere i thought i was setting a tone for <laughs> i don't think there's any smoking in space well, not in space, not in space, but you know, just off camera, that's exactly what was happening. I'm going to point out that a man in the second episode You're smoked right. a cigar. <laughs> You're right. He is the American, the villain, so we all know what role we're playing on He's this He's just podcast. chomping a big stogie. <laughs> oh, yeah, you're the villain this time? Ups, upside down, coming in, you know? We all set a tone. Who's the big one here? Who's throwing the beat, the big dick energy, you know, in this show? <laughs> well, Jeff, as you know, science fiction television podcast... We love to ask new guests, what's your history with kind of sci-fi and sci-fi TV? Doesn't it all start with the the Ninja Turtles? I mean, like, is it? <laughs> I, I think mean, that was Socrates that said that, wasn't it? Yeah. I mean, that, I mean, my history, you know, I came to Socrates later in my life, but Ninja Turtles first. Um, I mean, which came first for me? Who knows? Um, tur- <laughs> so, I mean, I... I've, yeah, that's my history. I think I've. Are you a fan? Been... Are you a fan of the genre? Or are you? Are you? I like... meant that sincerely. I meant that sincerely, not just as a joke. I mean, <laughs> I have a, I have a matching hat T-shirt combo. I still rep um, the idea of um, things below us, things above us. Um, you know, <laughs> who's your favorite of the Ninja Turtles? I mean, it evolves, right? As you do, I think, as a person. Um, I think at first you you kind of just identify with the basic. Uh, Everyone's thing. favorite is Michelangelo to begin with, right? 
Always. Well, because he's the one with the least conflict and the one that's, you know, the most fun, I think. Um, But, Mm -hmm. you know, I think in my later life, it's obviously Donatello, right? I mean, as... Oh, see, in my later life, I've moved on to Raphael. That was mid. He was mid for me. I mean, there was a point (laughs) in my life where I was like, didn't belong, you know? But now I'm just into gadgets and shit. And that's fun. So I would identify more there. Jordan stopped at uh, teenage angst. That's where he stopped. Living with Raphael. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then I exactly, pretty much. I mean, and then it evolved straight through to. Um, I think when I was fourteen, my aunt, um, who's like thirty years older than me, we never see her. She heard I liked movies and was really into movies, so she got me a VHS copy of Blade Runner, you know, widescreen VHS, right? And uh, this thing kind of like, what the, what is this, you know? Like, what is this, you know? Like, there's, like, what? I have no idea. And uh, and I would, because, you know, and this is the thing that I still to this day remind her, you know, like, it made me think, like, who's doing this like why is this being made do you know what i mean i couldn't follow there's no real story there's no real emotion there's no reason to watch it other than like you're completely fascinated by what's happening so i think i think it kind of like evolved there you know it went from simple and that's why i sort of start with turtles and basic instincts of like sci-fi um and and like being touched by that but um i think that's what really opened my mind to like why would you tell a story not just to enjoy one, right? And right, right. Uh, I think now it's really exacerbated, obviously, with comic book movies. But, you know, for mass pu- mass public, mass appeal, whatever, that's just popular now. But, um, yeah, I think that's where it started. I, I, And that's my history. That was the question, right? There you go. That, it, this is a great. I loved this answer. It was uh, from the bottom of the sewers to the top of space. You went, all, you went through all of it. <laughs> But the most important part, Luke, we never found out who your favorite Ninja Turtle is. There you go. It's a very good question. Oh, it's Donatello. It's Donatello as well. I don't think I've ever been in a room where two people have picked Donatello. He's the Ringo, isn't he? <laughs> is it, no, Michelangelo would be the Ringo. It's got to be Leonardo. I mean, he might have been the leader, but like, who, the, who wants to be Leonardo? I think Leonardo is my brother's favorite. Okay. I'll have to follow up. I'll follow up. I'll, I'll we'll, we'll answer it in another podcast. <laughs> who wants to who wants to live in constant shame of not meeting expectations? <laughs> How is that attractive to a child? <laughs> we should hug your brother. <laughs> no, he's a Leonardo. No hugging. <laughs> right? Sorry, Sensei. Raphael would never hug a Leonardo. No. Not that this is about Ninja Turtles, but there's no. more to go into here. There's more to go into. So maybe well, this is a good time to transition. Let's, let's start talking about these episodes. Uh, I'll get into the IMD summary for episode three, Intelligent Listening for Beginners. Spring fires two star cops, Pal Kenzie and Kirk Hubble, for corruption. A terrorist organization, the Black Hand Gang, has attacked a chemical plant and the Channel Tunnel using a computer worm. <laughs> I don't know why I said it that way. The star, the star cops are warned of further attacks by a communications expert engaged in secret research on an outpost on the moon. And that was courtesy of Gus F. Ooh, Gus F. I have one thing to mention before we start. I don't know if you guys noticed a difference because I don't think it's as drastic as some of the things I've read. But this show had a lot of problems during production about conflicts with the writer and the producer. And apparently there's two major directors that direct this series and they did it in block shooting. So the first three episodes were directed by one director. Then another director took over for two, and then back and forth. Now, apparently these two directors 
did not like each other, did not like either one's style. And so weirdly, the episode three we're watching is directed by one director and episode four is by another director. And from what I read, the one uh, Chris Baker, who did episode three, liked a, quote, pristine, brightly lit approach. And the other director, Graham Harper, liked everything sort of illuminated by the screens and things. And he wanted like the sets to be messier and dingier and have things. I don't know if it's that clear in these, but it's something maybe as we go through, if we kind of notice the differences of this sort of disorienting kind of clash of styles between these two directors, which we'll see throughout the series. That's interesting. I mean, I'd have to go back and watch them again to see if I know, like we are already watching like a, old version yeah, bad copy. has been updated to youtube or uploaded to youtube so we're already kind of several d- levels of degradation in but i'll be watching for that i think I, I think you do see a little bit more screens like lighting of my screen in the second episode so that makes sense to me but we still get that theme song it's all that matters bom, 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 bom. it's been in my head all week jeff did you enjoy that theme song to Cops? It was very oddly intriguing the cro- i mean i was it was more the visuals to me I'm more of a visual person. I don't even know what the song was. I mean, I'm just thinking this was a creator's like friend who kind of did music, right? <laughs> it was the Moody Blues. It was a real band. Yeah, because like, isn't that what like everyone's dad's friend can kind of do? You know, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like that's kind of like what it sounds like. It's just like this really kind of trippy stuff, you know, and and. and <laughs> And which is great. Uh, and this Moody Blues is very, very apt. Because <laughs> uh, that's that's all it kind of gives you is this ominous tone. And the fact that, like, the face shield kind of turns into the frame, the helmet, and it goes, like, through it. It's kind of, like, emptiness. You know what I mean? It's, it's, like a, good, this... it's a good opening title sequence. There's no question. I just got to think at the time, right? Like, how what are opening title sequences like? They're not like that, right? Yeah, no, it's just cross-cutting footage from the show, and then, uh, I don't know, Urkel jumps through a door. Yes, right? <laughs> this this was its own thing, and, like, the footprint coming down, like, this was the David Fincher opening <laughs> sequence, like, of its time for, you know, British television, right? Absolutely. Like, this was its own commissioned deal. Not, and we could probably talk about the opening theme song forever with its title, Crosshairs, but we'll get into the episode because episode three opens on a cyber attack happening at a chemical processing plant. Yeah, mm-hmm. biggest production value I've ever seen in one of these shows. <laughs> <laughs> There's shit blown up everywhere. How many shots were there? How many wide shots of stuff going crazy? So that's like, it's days, right, for this budget, for this or How many cameras? There's got, this is an all out day for this show. It is insane. Like, we kind of see some people who are, I guess, working at the control room of it, and um, a, a f- couple lines of poetry suddenly appear on their computer monitors. Uh, oh, Rose, thou art sick, and the invisible worm that flies in the night. And this is this is to indicate a uh, cyber attack is about to begin. And immediately, like, the, the place starts going crazy. One thing I really like about this, when you see this sort of thing in, in TV shows, you know, whatever it might be, Star Trek or whatever, some of the extras are really giving it when they're running, and some aren't. And I like that. I like the extras who are like, don't worry, I'm going to get down the staircase. We'll be fine, guys. Calm down. No need to rush. People are collecting insurance off that show. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There has to be 25 people in just the same white jumpsuit just running around this like big open, I guess it's like a two-story, it looks more like an office building maybe than a perhaps chemical plant, but they're like throwing debris at them. They're explosions there's smoke everywhere they're just people are just jumping off of the second floor it's insane 
The best thing to me, though, is because they're going to such lengths. And the editing team obviously knows this, or there's a producer in the room, where they're holding the shot from action right to cut. There's no, you know, because <laughs> every shot is its own thing, which I think is what makes it feel like the most Michael Bay sequence of the two episodes I watched, right? There is this sense of, like, Transformers happening in that moment. And I love the flip from, you know, behind the monitor, right? These words on a monitor, and it's this, like, <laughs> it's like POV of the, mo- you know what I mean? And they're just setting the tone. And then it just flips on a dime. It's like, oh, we got a text message is what it feels like, right? And this text <laughs> message, you know, is like, a, what is it, this... um hidden invisible worm that flies in the night yes no but that's the other one there's this other thing the art of a rose is oh uh, oh rose thou art sick oh rose thou art sick that's it and then all of a sudden captain we've lost you know the ability to control this thing you know and it's two guys in a room and it's very static there's no moving shot it's just you know and it's overlit and then they cut to a sequence of the reaction of now this virus and them not being able to control stuff. Stuff is blowing up and it's 25 shots. Each shot is epic as the next of like the same 60 at background being rotated, falling over each other, running around and then blowing gaskets and stuff and super sound effects. Right. It's, it's quite the, uh, the turn. I mean, this is the most action this show has ever had. They're like, clearly like, Oh, this is going to be amazing. Let's spend all day. Although I do like that it like this whole sequence ends on stock footage of an explosion. <laughs> That's how because they don't have enough money to actually blow up a building, so then they're like it fades into just a stock footage like explosion happening. What was it the cut the cutaways in the show and like the contrast? That's what I mean. Like it goes from these and then all of a sudden it cuts to like a model just like going through and it's clearly a model the little vehicle the little yeah, moon right. base the vehicle. little moon base vehicle and it's clearly a model going in slow mo and it's holding forever. And it's like the contrast. It's an interesting thing you mentioned because at both times, it's actually a really good little model. And I think for the time, it probably looked really good. It, it's a little tiny bit hokey now because you can you can see it doesn't quite move like something that would have that weight in real life. But it's a pretty good little miniature. But what I like about it is we almost see the journey from the one base to another in real time. It takes so long. And I remember at the end when uh, we'll go through it, you know, there's some scenes and then they drive back. I'm like, we're not going to see them drive back, are we? Yes, you are. You're going to see them drive back. It just takes, it seems like it takes like an eternity for them to drive from one base to the other. And I'm sure it's probably, there's an intention to that, to to show the journey that has to happen. But it's so funny to see in TV, watching this tiny little miniature drive over these mini little rocks. Yeah, I heard this is George Miller's favorite episode of this <laughs> uh, episode. Uh, it's what Fury Road is based on. Yes, this is, this is where the episode heads to, is we head up to the moon base and uh, Nathan... And Thoreau, our uh, two lead star cops, have been invited out to take a moon rover, which we, as you said, see drive all over this moon, uh, to the very high security Outpost 9. Um, They've been invited there by the son of an Elon Musk-esque super wealthy inventor. Um, The son's name is Dr. Chandra, and he wants to speak with them. I found him very secretive off the top. Is that how we all felt about him? He was a little bit cagey. He was very nice, though. I gotta see a picture of this guy again. He was, uh, Dr. Chandri is basically, they, they go out to this secret moon. It's not a secret moon base, but it's high security. And whatever he's doing there is clearly like top secret. He's essentially invited the, the star cops there because he's received information about an imminent Earth moon shuttle hijacking by the anarchist extremists named the Black Hand Gang. Mm-hmm. Yes. Well, and I remember that the black guy in the show was like, that's a shitty name. 
<laughs> he, he is every single time he's come out he seems overly irritated about whatever information they're getting he's always a little bit a little bit off with it definitely i do like that later in the episode there's just an aside with uh thoreau has box his little uh personal ai assistant and there's just an aside where box oh, is, is that like, what the box is in the pool table so i'm coming yeah. in cold right so the dynamic for me anyway yes yes it, it, it's basically uh a, a siri or an alexa um Yes, which you're like, oh, wow. But Box looks into the Black Hand Gang, and he gets back to him, and he's just like, oh, by the way, I looked into that name, and I think whoever this terrorist group is doesn't understand who they named their gang after. He's like, the Black Hand Gang was an American criminal organization, but the Black Hand was a Spanish anarchist group, so I don't think this this group of terrorists is very bright. I was just like, this is a weird aside. (laughs) You know, the contrast in the two episodes, number three, it was very plot driven and therefore you're just trying to stay on task with the show especially with Mm -hmm. its pacing and like its love for the models which like again you know really spoke to the Blade Runner in me and there's a lot of nostalgic awesomeness for Battlestar as well um that way where they have just these random cutaways and um but the second show is so character driven right and I don't know this much like you those contrasts between the characters were so clashy it's so hard in this. Um, like the dialogue is really missed and you're kind of clicking along at a pace like, okay, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then it's the next scene. So it's like you're then recalling the information. I don't know if I was like feeling it as much um, as I was like trying to count it. I think this episode for sure, and this is a thing we've noticed in previous episodes, is very, it, it falls into the trap of the previous episodes of just a lot of exposition something comes at you very quickly. Like in this scene where Dr. Shandry warns them about this hijacking that's coming, He's also like playing very coy about what he what they do on Outpost Nine, and um, Nathan's basically able to guess what it is, but he'll neither confirm nor deny that they're he's essentially running an an NSA style intelligent listening system that's been designed for the government to monitor all communications for keywords, and that's how he got this information. Mm-hmm. Right, and it's just like you get like all of this stuff in like a five minute sitting, and you're like, wait, how much of this do I need to remember? Well, it's an interesting point that you make, Jeff, and it, it's something that I've kind of noticed as now we're into episode three is the characters talk and talk and talk, and some of it's important and some of it's not important, and I'm not sure if it's just watching now things from a modern view, but it sometimes is hard, at least for me, to to try to parse out what I'm supposed to be paying attention to because they give a lot of information and some of it's world building, some of it's character building, some of it's plot driven. So you're just like, how much of this am I supposed to pay attention to? And coming in cold on episode three, you're, you're sort of just letting it happen and not expecting too much of yourself. <laughs> <laughs> and I, Enjoy the models. Do you know what I mean? Like exactly. But they, so they have this meeting, they've learned about this hijacking that's coming and they leave and back on earth, there's another cyber attack happening this time uh, at the channel tunnel, the same poetry lines come up and then uh, we get a very long scene that just amounts to two trains crashing into each other. <laughs> I love the screen, though. They had, like, the guys monitoring the train screen was on, I think it was, like, a glass see-through screen where you had what I assume was the, the, whatever the equivalent of train tracks are. Yes, yeah, so it just showed you what the channel was up to and what the, where the trains were. I, I This scene was fine, but it was also, like, these two co-workers have a long conversation about inter-office politics. <laughs> and, like, I'm just like, does this, any of this matter? And it, it doesn't really. They're just, they need a scene to happen. So these two, so I'm just like, you're listening to... The future politics of the Channel Tunnel railway system. <laughs> yeah, because why not? I mean, and that is, that's what this show is. It's something that you get over and over and over. It's just, there will be scenes like this where you're like, are they building these characters for a reason? Like, nope, not at all. 
Um, meanwhile, though, Nathan, he uh, he has some other things to deal with other than uh, hijackings and uh, cyber attacks. There are uh, two current Star Cops that he intends to, I guess, fire today. Or he's not really firing them. He's just kind of forcing them to resign. One of them is Pel- Pal Kenzie. She's an Australian that we actually saw very briefly in the first episode. But she's she's back now. And you know she's Australian because she's wearing kangaroo earrings. <laughs> I didn't notice the earrings. She is. She's wearing kangaroo earrings. So you double down on that. And then another is, a, is an American named Hubble who needs to get fired. Luke, is it true that like much like when you go to Hawaii and they lay the uh, the, the wreath on you around your neck? They, they lay the flowers. It's the same in Australia, isn't it? They give you those kangaroo earrings. Yeah, no, they pierce, they, they punch they them right the ear. pierce your ears at the <laughs> airport. <laughs> um, but no, basically, they're both kind of corrupt cops. Um, Hubble, the American, he kind of gives in pretty gracefully off screen. He's like, all right, you caught me. I, I guess I'll leave my job. Whereas K- Kenzie's a little harder to shake off her job. Like when she shows up to be fired, she doesn't quite realize that's what she's there for. And she... The first thing she does is attempt to sell Nathan, the Star Cops boss, on buying a special Australian laser weapon that uh, specially targets skin tones, which uh, Thoreau is immediately like, you built a racist laser? Yes. Yeah. For the black hand? No. Just kidding. Yeah, I guess so. But it- the name racist laser didn't test well, though, so they were trying to come up with other names for it. <laughs> which was a very, it was just a very funny introduction to this character. But very quickly, Nathan's just like, oh, uh, I'm not here to buy this laser weapon, which maybe you own shares of the company. I'm here to fire you because, and Jeff, you won't know this, but in the last episode that we just watched, there was a big, dumb, bad cop on Earth who was looking into an investigation who got fired. And uh, there was some, Jordan was sure this was going to happen, but there was some like indication maybe he'd get hired to the Star Cops. And sure enough, old Divas is now part of the Star Cops. And Nathan immediately used him to do a sting operation to uh, have her attempt to shake him down for money and, like, record the whole thing. So she's been caught on video being corrupt. She's like, well, I guess I am uh, fired. Well, yeah, that's episode. That's how episode three ends, right? Well, exactly. This is this is where we are. Just Divas is, Divas is part of the Star Cops, and he's helping get this uh, Kenzie fired. There's a lot of friends through conflict in this show, right? It is true. These two, this is where these two are going to take a little trip, because after he's kind of, like fired or like force resigned these two star cops um nathan is like half i don't know why this is a star cop problem but he's kind of half assigned box his little cyber his little his little personal system to do some investigation into these cyber attacks which by the way jordan we've known he's had this box for a while and we've known people are like oh it's very expensive to own an ai this little ai personal assistant this episode they're like it's like nobody has this. It's it's a one of a kind prototype that never went into production. So now I'm just like, what is this thing? I think they've slightly retconned things because they did mention in episode one or two that his father gave it to him and it was sort of cutting edge technology. And everyone's like, wow, that's great. Like only the best of the best have this little box. But now it's like one of a kind item. I think probably because maybe it creates too many plot holes if you have everyone that has this little mini supercomputer that answers everything with them at all time. And it's like, makes him special in that way well yeah that's where you get your your act of god right in this world technology is always going to be god so you need that device right (laughs) and i mean box does it here because just like using google box looks up those two lines of poetry and says like those two lines of poetry were written by blake and then and they're like oh you know what when we were at dr chandra's office i noticed he had a book of blake's poetry maybe we should go back and talk to him now, here's the thing. If I'm Dr. Chandri and I only really like one poet, 
And it's, <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? Don't use that said poet's poetry in your nefarious plans is all I'm saying. Pick a different poet. W.W. Yeah, Walter White. Yeah, Walter White. Yeah. <laughs> so Nathan goes back there and he, use as, he uses it as an excuse to return to visit uh, old Dr. Chandra is that when they were looking at his personal rec- personnel records, it's, it's, I guess, against the law to not include your entire background. But he forgot to mention that he was the inventor of racist lasers. So <laughs> <laughs> to be fair, we all try to scrub that from our resumes. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know what I'll ever find out about mine. Um I, like that was why it was hard, really, to commit to the storyline because, like, is that what we're talking about? Is <laughs> it's, it's, it's it's completely unnecessary for. It's reason. almost something you wouldn't write that you couldn't write today. It's almost something that you know you it's you would not be able to do this, even though it's almost a better way to approach it at this point. Um, there's no way that they would allow that storyline. So you're kind of like tr- allowing yourself to commit to this to the storyline of like. Um, yeah, we're literally talking about things this bold and this broad, right? Yeah. The trip back to, like, talk to him about this missing thing on his personal record is just an excuse for Nathan to basically, like, quiz him about these these cyber attacks that have been happening. And it's very funny because very quickly, Dr. Chandra, he just, like, he gives up and he kind of just blows his entire, his entire scheme, which is a very complicated scheme. And I'm going to try to lay it out here for you guys. And let me tell, and you can tell me afterward if you understood this is what the plot of the show was about. <laughs> so Dr. Chandri has invented an intelligent listening system for essentially NSI style, style like spying. However, the machine he built turns out doesn't work at all. Right. And he has daddy issues because his dad is like Elon Musk and his dad built a multi-million dollar company off of like, you know, components that the entire world uses now. So the government asked Dr. Chandri to prove his intelligent listening machine by providing him information that the Black Hand Gang, they had heard the Black Hand Gang was going to hijack a ship and they wanted him to scan communications to track them down. His machine doesn't work. So what he does is he just calls the star cops and pretends his intelligent listening machine found this information and assigns them to like basically do his job is like find out information about this. And this is all just to buy time for him somehow. But what he's really done is he's used his position in his father's company to drop into the channel tunnel and this processing plant and implant a, like a physical chip, which he calls a computer worm, which is a thing, but he's actually installing a physical chip into their computer, basically mainframe, which he's triggering using this poetry code that, you know, is basically causing these accidents. And then his plan after these accidents have happened and killed all these people is he's going to say his intelligent listening system also picked up this piece of code. So he discovered it and his machine works. But when it picked up that code, it also blew up his system. Like he's basically so they can't check on it. So they can't check on whether it worked or not. So this is just the most elaborate scheme to cover up the fact that his machine doesn't work. He's going to like blow up two systems, destroy his own, destroy his own outpost and then get the star cops looking into this hijacking? Well, the whole thing really comes down to it's fraud is what it is. It's a fraudulent business. And I don't know really, though, to what end other than his own insecurity with his feelings about himself and his He's status purely compared to saving his father. Face. He's purely yeah. saving face. But in terms of something that kind of Jeff mentioned earlier, in terms of a viewer watching this, it's so complicated and so convoluted for a plot from get to point A to point B that I don't know who would be excited at the revelation of what the answer to the end of this episode is because 
it's so complicated because you're right because it's like Jeff, what are the you, stakes did you understand no i mean not really <laughs> you know what i understood is i i understood the dynamics between the characters and the stakes for them so i didn't really and that's what i mean is this first episode three is very much centered in what's the, what the plot is and so it you know, you understand what's at stake as far as, like, I agree, I disagree out of these two characters, right? Someone agrees, someone disagrees. And then at the end, they come to terms. That's all you're really focused on. But there are so many. And because you're coming in, I was coming in cold, not you, but me, and not most people, but episode three, you're like, who is everybody? And, like, is this guy a bad guy? Is this girl a bad girl? You know what I mean? So with all that going on, no, it was very hard to follow. I mean, I would agree with you, though. I think, like, the emotional arcs for the characters are, like, what they what they wanted and what they didn't want were clear. But when they tried to explain how the plot mechanics worked, that's when it was just, like, I'm, like, slow, slow, you, and they're explaining it to you all in one scene. And, I, like, and not quickly. These are, like, long, drawn-out scenes. But I'm still, like, slow down. Hold on. Wait. Who did what? <laughs> I don't want to say reference Blade Runner again. But, like, it's kind of like the Tyrell scene at the end where, you know, like, what has this all been about? Right, right. And it's like, even that, it's just like, you know, simpler's better. It's about creation, you know, or like, what is this about? <laughs> it's about a racist It's about ID saving thing. face. Yes, right. To Jeff's point, though, if you were a viewer coming in in 1987 and you didn't know this show was on and it's Tuesday night and you're like, hey, what's this show? And you started watching this, you would be so confused as to what this world is, how do these characters interact, what is the plot? I mean, I don't know if that was the reason this show didn't make it, but I mean, if I had flipped to the channel, I'd have flipped back off because you have no idea what's happening. You'd have to love models. I'm telling you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you'd yeah. have to you'd have to love the look of things, which I'm really excited to talk about episode episode four, because then you're just like, oh, fuck, I'd watch this show. Episode three, you're kind of trying to make sense of everything. The world It's such a world builder. And for me, I'm like. I'm all down for world building. I have patience for that. And so that I have time to like care about these people, you know, it's what, and I think that's the trend these days is like people say, wait till episode three or four. It really gets, it really digs in. <laughs> and I, and I feel like this is, this is not, you know, I'm from episode three, cool world build. And then four, I was hooked. You know, I didn't, I don't know if I need one or two, but the gang's all here, you know, by four. I think that's a good point though, is like, like a modern TV show where things build over four episodes and you're not really into the full group. This this show feels in that way way ahead of its time. Like Kenzie yes. is introduced in episode one, which you didn't see, Jeff, but she's just on a screen. They talk to her for about five or ten minutes. You, she, We know she's a star cop. We know what base she works on. But we don't see her again until she comes back to get fired for being corrupt. But even in episode one, they imply that she like is fairly like corruptible. So, like, these seeds have been laid in the past, and it's just funny to see them, like, come to fruition this much later in the series. Well, you're right, because it's basically episode four where we're going to have our cast that's going to be our our characters. It's episode four. They're all in place now. That's, uh, uh, I don't, can't think of too many shows in the 1980s that trusted the viewer would stick around long enough to follow that uh, serialization of those characters joining the team. Because, yeah, there's a moment in episode four where, what is her name? Kenzie. Kenzie, right? So there's a moment when Kenzie leaves with the American guy, you know, and he's all like super hitting on her. We'll talk about it. But, so yeah, you know, she leaves. And when she leaves with him, there was a moment there where I'm like, oh, is she going to get turned by this guy? And then you're like, no, no, not Kenzie. 
You know what I mean? Like I'm already. <laughs> you're already. You're already like I'm not Kenzie. She wouldn't do that. She wouldn't do that. You know. She I'm already. She only tried Star to Cops. sell that racist laser the previous episode. Right. Exactly. It's like yeah, but she was doing. You know, but she did save the team. You know, and it's like, did she save the team or her own ass? And it's like, you know, people can change. Kenzie can change. I have hope. Well, let's get let's finish up this episode then, because essentially after Chandra lays out his plan. Dr. Chandri then also activates the worm on and on post nine. And we basically get that big scene where like Nathan has to wrestle a laser gun out of his hand and he kills Chandri. And then Nathan has to jump in a, one of these space rovers and like drive away as fast as he can away from the base before it explodes. And like they run a very tension heavy music, but like it says, you know, Nathan escapes the exploding base. Chandri is defeated. And then we get a newscast that explains the whole thing. Like the newscast basically implies the whole thing was eventually covered up by the government because the newscast just says, oh, an accident happened on the moon and Dr. Chandri was killed. Nothing wrong up there. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But the side plot that's been happening alongside this is if you've forgotten, this whole thing started off with a hijacking of this shuttle that's going to the moon, which... The Stark Ops did very little to do anything about, even though that was the impetus for this episode, is to stop a hijacking. But Nathan has sent this uh, dumb cop, Devis, down to Australia, because after he fired Kenzie, he's like, I would like you to go buy about 200 of those racist lasers for me. That, they'd be great for the Stark Ops. That's, that, like, that's what I'm talking about. Because just when you think you know where this show is and what the plot and everything, then this guy goes at the end and he's like, you know what, let's pick up a couple. And you're like, wait a minute. <laughs> Weren't these a bad thing? And you're like, yeah, but if we have the technology, you know, that we can get ahead of the technology, you know, and uh, you think, hold on, who's good in this show? Like, who's the good yeah, guy? Yeah, I mean, that whole thing was weird. Like, Nathan implies he doesn't want his his team armed at all, and then, but mostly he's just doing that, I guess. Yeah, we don't, I don't need guns. Doesn't he say that to an American in yeah, the next episode? he says that to Kenzie, too, but I think he's just, like, messing with her. Oh, he does say it to the Australian, which is ironic now. But essentially, that's just to have a scene now where he's gone to Australia, he's bought a bunch of lasers, and now he gets back on the shuttle, which is just like a commercial airliner that comes back up to the moon. And it just so happens when he, when Divas gets on the shuttle, uh, Kenzie's also on the shuttle. She's going back to space because she's just going to get another job up in space somewhere. And of course, as you do with a coworker you just got fired, hey, maybe I'll sit with you. <laughs> Can I say, I really like the look of uh, the spaceship, though, because it looked half like a train and half like a plane but their seats still run along the sides of the ship but the part where i assume like the the steward or uh uh, person you know taking tickets or whatever is an elevated so they're all much lower so it's like you just watch their legs go by i just i don't know why i I, it really tickled me yeah their their legs and their crotches i mean you aren't you downwind from a lot of traffic (laughs) like it, it must suck to be like seated down in that compartment right also, I didn't see any stairs. How do they get down there? Do they have to hop down and then climb back out? Yeah, it was a weird, like, S-pattern down. It was a weird ramp. Like, and you know it's just, it's just you know, a full, a half, you know, and a quarter apple box to get down, right? They're just not showing you to the seats, right? They're up on a riser. You guys it's... are just watching this uh, set design being like, what is happening here? <laughs> well, kind of. You're kind of breaking it apart. Like, how did he get down and sit down? They're like, how is this happening? You know, but that's kind of what the show really does well. Is it either watched 2001 before they made every episode and pointed <laughs> at it and was like, we need to do this type of thing. And they were like, well, how do we do it, you know, on our budget? And it's like, well, you know, it's about parallax and cross and, you know. <laughs> so I think that's that's pretty much like what's appealing about the show and what it nails in that episode, right? And what it's really relying ep- uh, heavily on. I think it kind of knew 
how plot heavy it was and so it in that it was a world building episode you were saying at the top these were directed by two different ep, uh directors um yeah. and i don't know what kind of input they had on the story but definitely in the way it was told in its focus you can feel because watching them again i would watch it no knowing all this it'd be interesting to see and just really pay attention to the script to see how similar the scripts really are and how a director's influence can really affect the way that the viewers getting it because the first one's so plot true the second one i was and i don't even remember the plot care um but the fourth one man I'm, you're there. You're there for all the characters, and it's about the characters, that fourth one. It is interesting, and I mean, maybe it is a little bit of the team getting set up in this episode to, like, help sell the next one, or maybe it is just, like, the, this director doesn't know how to deal with, like, all of these dialogue-heavy scenes. Because in this scene on this plane, Divas sits next to Kenzie, and they have a conversation about how she can't come back to Earth. She needs to go to space. Like, once she's bit, would you kind of been there and lived there? Like, you want to go back? And uh, Divas is, like, kind of new to space, but he's getting used to it. And also Divas is just like, hey, I heard you got fired. I hate policewomen, but I love women. You want to you wanna flirt a little on this plane? <laughs> he was right into it. I think he mentions he's been married several times. Right? Five five times. And then he, he goes, I told you I love cuddles. <laughs> or very cuddly, right? He's very, very, cuddly. very cuddly. He gives the, like, the sweetest smile. I'm very yeah. cuddly. Um, but this space shuttle they're on returning to the moon, this is going to be the one that's hijacked because very soon there's a, a an announcement is made over the intercom that sounds very mundane. But Kenzie, as an ex-Star Cop, knows that's an indication a crime is happening. So uh, they grab the space lasers and they go check out these hijackers have a knife and they're holding a they're holding a stewardess hostage and. Divas pretends to be a drunk trying to get a new, like, trying to find a drink on the plane and like saves saves the stewardess so that Kenzie can swoop in and laser one of the guys. By the way, how many times I, I it must be a trope? Do you see a character pretending to be drunk for some other means? It, we just saw it in the TV movie we watched uh, about pool. It always works every time. If you pretend you're drunk, you can get in anywhere and get anything. <laughs> Everyone just lets you through. They're like, ah, he's just drunk. Yeah. Um. And then there's one of these one of these hijackers. There's completely inexplicable because they never explain what's happening. He just pulls out a glass ball, and everyone's like, "Oh no, a glass ball!" And then he throws it across the room, and Kenzie has to like dive and grab it. I guess we're supposed to assume there's like a biological agent inside of that glass ball. Yeah, it was something like that. either a bomb or yeah, some a chemical weapon of some sort. Anyways, it was very whatever it was supposed to be. It was supposed to be very scary. I think it was the inspiration for the rock. Um, <laughs> Michael yeah. Bay was watching this. This was where yeah. he got the ideas for explosions and people running around. Exactly. And then the plot device for the rock. And Transformers, you know, with that <laughs> opening sequence. Like this, they, we found the beginning of Michael Bay, the inception of Michael Bay's. Before he makes any movie, style. the entire crew has to watch this episode of Star Cops. That's right. What I like, though, in Star Cops, everything, even if it's supposed to be a uh, more cinematic, uh, larger moment, it's always handled with the least of plum possible and it's just like even this being this glass ball floating i mean she has to jump and do this big scene to catch it but like she could have just casually walked over and picked it out of the air because it goes so slow their action sequences are ambitious if not well executed <laughs> yeah th that's probably a good way to explain it yeah yeah they're ambitious but you're just like who decided this was exciting at any rate having saved the day saved all these people on this thing and stopped the hijacking what i love is kenzie's just like i've got an idea to fuck over Nathan and get my job back. And Divas is just like, yeah, sure, I'll help you out with that. I don't care. <laughs> I have no I have no allegiances to anyone. She throws a press conference, I, I guess immediately after the hijacking happened, where she's just like, 
us star cops we're all we're out here saving the day but i gotta thank my boss nathan for putting me out here to do this i'm definitely not fired i'm definitely working for the star cops and it just cuts back to the station and nathan's like fuming and throws like well guess she reinstated herself welcome back to the force she's an opportunist you gotta she took the uh took the shot she saw it's very funny. This is how she gets back on the team. Uh, we'll get on to the next episode now because I think everyone has a lot more to talk about that. I just want to make one quick side note. I want to see if either of you noticed this. So we see them in this shuttle on the ground at first. And then we see them go into atmosphere because like, we see a lot of the travels of these people. Once Kenzie and Divas are in space, did you notice that Divas's hair was redone to make it look like it was floating? I didn't notice. They, like, put gel in his hair. Like, it was very, like, padded down to begin with. And then once he's in space, they, like, gelled it out so it looks like it's frizzed out a bit for the rest of the time he's in space. So they, like, the hair department came in and gave him zero G hair. And I was just like, (laughs) good for you. Good for you. I love this. I love this hair team. (laughs) At any rate, we'll move on. Here is the IMDb summary for episode four. Trivial games and paranoid pursuits. What do you mean he wasn't a good crook? Well, the stupid bastard got caught. I mean, if you're going to pay somebody off, it's best to make sure he's bright enough to make it worth your while. Somebody paid him off? No, why the hell would anybody want to do anything like that? Well, to keep his mouth shut, I should imagine. You don't know. As Spring attempts to persuade the skeptical Americans to allow him to open a Star Cops office on their space station, the Ronald Reagan, he is asked to investigate the disappearance of a scientist, Dr. Harvey Goodman, from the Ronald Reagan station. And that uh, slightly abbreviated summary was courtesy, again, of just, uh, Gus F. Jeff mentioned this character at the beginning of this podcast. Uh, he's going to be uh, the sort of point of conflict. He's this American character on the Ronald Reagan space station. The com- Commander Griffin. Commander Griffin. And what I liked about him was he was an American as drawn by, like, a soviet viewpoint or something like he's as american as american like he's such a stereotype he's just like he's wearing a baseball cap and he's smoking a cigar and he's like i love baseball and he's just i really really enjoyed it it was probably one of my favorite things in this show is just how what a caricature he was he's wearing a brooklyn dodgers hat and a dallas cowboys t-shirt i know i loved it i loved it not only that jeff but it was just i think the point was like he loves sports am i right american because he had pennants and posters on the wall and they were all different sports teams different sports it's just like he has no allegiances it's just he wants to see a ball thrown through an apparatus there's a there's a bird's eye view of the whole place that's an octagon right it's like foreshadowing of the whole M- mma thing and it's <laughs> over a pool table in amongst the shrine of sports that you're describing so yeah. it's like yeah it's very much like he's amazing he's chomping a stogie the entire time he like he is he is a perfect caricature of like un-american it's very yeah. funny it's like yeah, the yeah. 54th star you know is an, <laughs> is an octagon Aren't there actually 53 states? Anyway. I I don't know. That's a good question. Um, This episode starts off, though, with a uh, space salvage team who we'll see intercut throughout the entire episode. But we're not going to go back to them because it's just like they're basically out in space. And it starts with them finding one of these space station modules just floating around in space. I guess it's floating towards the sun. And they're like, payday, space salvage. Let's grab this. And it's, again, the fun miniature work. This is some of the cool stuff uh, that this show does. And... It's very funny. I, this is just my personal thing, but I, I I love I love the trope of space salvage as a job in the future. Mm-hmm. 
there's like a good there's a good Japanese graphic novel called Planet uh, Planets about it something like that and then even a recent Netflix movie called Space Sweepers and it's always about and I just love movies and things about like I do salvage in space I don't know why it makes me laugh this is the one scene that uh, I noticed in terms of the different sort of art direction of the two episodes uh, whenever you see these salvage people and we cut to them throughout the episode it's always very dark you only see the light that's coming through the window for, through space and it's all and you don't really know what's happening and um i, I just i like that they it, it's just like these two weird people kind of bickering over space garbage i want to, now that i know that this is a different director who came in after the first three episodes we've seen this jeff before is that like they'll open on a spacecraft in space that does not have our lead characters in it but previously what they've done is they've just shown the model and then just did like mm. ADR work over top of it. And it's kind of like an ugly way of doing a scene. You just get the ADR of the people inside, but you never meet them, even though they're characters in the episode. Whereas it felt like maybe this director came in was just like, listen, it's fine. I don't need a lot of money. You don't need to build me a space shuttle set. I'm going to d- light it really dark. You're never going to see the interior, but I can't shoot this sequence and never meet these characters because it works so much better getting does, to like yeah. get in there with the two characters. What's it? Yeah. Episode four is such a, better show it's such a better show it's such a better tone setter you start in darkness on two people and like what it might actually be like to live in space yeah like the whole concept of like junk people in space you know it's like hey we could survive if we do this and that's what they're discussing and you feel the intimacy because we're in one you know tight space with them right and it's all one hole and they like live in a hole like that's what it sort of feels like right so it's a, a huge contrast from like the fucking michael bay opening of episode three. <laughs> but yeah it's such a hu- better tone setter for like the humanity in space yeah 100 um, percent. so so that's the focus of this episode it seems and then, it doesn't seem like the the uh, the space scavenging is a great uh, career is not the sense no. you get <laughs> no no it's pretty hard scramble life up there i think mm-hmm and what the episode three misses that I think episode four really does is it aligns character with politics, which the third episode is like not even focused on. It's just like we need another shot of it exploding. It doesn't <laughs> care to like nail the nuance of the dynamics, the blocking and the shot dynamics, the choices of episode four are so much smarter the blocking and the camera movement is so simple precise everybody steps in you feel when everyone comes together in a scene because that's what the blocking and the shot is doing um the other one is just like covering it and cutting and you know and you can tell where the money's going and you can tell where the time is going Uh, but this one it's all in one shot as much as possible and it's doing as much as it can in that one shot and it's uh and it's really focused on why Good prelude to this episode, Jeff. Um, this scene from these space officers goes down to Earth where we see like a very suburban neighborhood in what I would assume is Colorado due to its location near mountains. And the theme music to 2001 is kind of playing. Kids are running around. And we cut to a character named Dilly Goodman. And she's calling up to the main U.S. space station, the Ronald Reagan, trying to track down her missing brother who's a scientist there, Dr. Goodman. And I love the AI receptionist that picks up this video phone call when it starts. Her hair is... She had crazy hair, right? She Her hair is essentially a triangle. Yeah. That's the sort of stuff I like in science fiction. I don't need... I want a little bits of world building of like, hey, guess what? In the future, everyone's tie is weird. That's what I want to see. And I liked it that this lady, it's like, 
You call, there's still a bureaucrat. She's, if anything, worse as a bureaucrat, and she's got a crazy triangle hair. I was all into it. I was like, oh, look at Dora. She's still exploring. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, it's very funny because they present her as a person, but very quickly we realize she's just like an AI receptionist. She's an up. animated thing, yeah. Yeah, a, a PR graphic, they call her, I believe. Mm-hmm. And it's just very funny because they've also programmed this AI to have a very, very snotty attitude, which I really liked. <laughs> Yeah, she's not helpful. Basically, uh, this lady, uh, what's her name? Last name's Goodman, right? Dilly, Dilly Goodman. Dilly, Dilly Goodman's calling, looking for her brother, and she keeps sort of hitting the wall every time. And the the feeling you have is that she's been going through this a little bit. She's looking for her brother, and every step along the way, someone is sort of putting a barrier in front of her. Yeah, they, they basically claim on the Ronald Reagan, he never came to here. He was never a scientist here. That never happened. Your brother was never here. Isn't it essentially an allegory for trying to get your cable set up? <laughs> uh, you know, she keeps calling to try to find her brother, and, and they're just like, you know, we can't send someone out today, you know. Your address doesn't even exist. Yeah, yeah. She's like, I don't think I don't think we have your district. I don't think. Aren't you with Shaw? Uh, on the character development front, we're back in the moon base space office of uh, the Star Cops, and Kenzie's back at work, but Nathan basically has assigned her to basically do just, like, filing duty. He's not going to give her any cases. He's not going to give her any good work, and she's annoyed by it. And I don't know. I, I don't know if you'll agree with me, but I really enjoyed this scene off the top because she's annoyed by what she has to do, and she's like, I'm not going to take this anymore. So she calls up Nathan, who's on his way. He's on a ship going to the Ronald Reagan. He calls her up, and she's, he's, she's just like, I'm going to submit my resignation. Nathan's like, great. And she's like, wait, you didn't let me finish. I'm going to submit my recognition if you don't give me more work. He's like, great, submit your resignation. I love it. <laughs> There's the conflict here that he's, even though she's wormed her way back into the job, he does not want her there. And he is purposely, if still a, you know, uh, it's like, it's not an HR issue. He's he's letting her work, but he's giving her the worst work possible so that she'll he'll force her to quit. Yeah. And then he's like, oh, well, it was pretty well done, I thought. And I thought it was, it told us a little bit about his character and her character as well. It was a nice, funny scene because it was like, it was a classic, like, a person trying to get a one-up on somebody who has no leverage. And, like, they just do it so dry but so quick. They're like, great, resign. Well, what's that? Okay, well, great, resign. <laughs> yeah. But I saved the company. Well, that's not your job to save the company. <laughs> <laughs> it does set up a nice uh, dynamic between the two because you know that the writers are going to want to give him some sort of grudging respect for her. And she has to somehow find a way to gain it, said yeah, respect yeah, yeah. so you just know that's happening and they and they handle it in a pretty a pretty good way through this i thought and it's yeah. so much better than the way that they do it in the in episode three where it's just like she's a woman yeah you know? <laughs> like that's like his it's like i don't trust women i think it's like the vibe i get in episode three where in episode four it's just like yeah very much just about who she is as a person and who he is Nathan, uh, meanwhile, he's, he arrives at this Ronald Reagan space station and we get some like some of the best miniature work they've ever done. It's like this huge station that's rotating yeah, while it orbits great. the Earth. Very 2001, as Jeff pointed out. It's sort of like a long, like kind of a cylinder, but then it has this arm that sticks out and spins around. I don't know if they ever, did they explain why it's set like that? I was assuming that it's like creating its own gravity because they do that's have exactly a reference uh, during the shot. They use the voiceover over model really effectively there. And that's what I mean. The whole episode is on point because it's like, why are we cutting to this? Well, because we're referencing the gravity. So that's why we're showing it. You know? Yeah, it's exactly it. it. When he gets there, he'll he'll dock with this spaceship and zero g walk kind of through the corridors. Oh right, artificial yeah, yeah. gravity. Yeah, get on the elevator that takes him out to these spinning parts. And it's great because he opens this airlock, and it's an amazing shot reflected in his 
mirror of of his helmet of just like the earth and this huge like spinning moment and he opens up and he's just like jesus christ i gotta ride this across this gap of space it's like it's a nicely done shot and it takes him out to basically a gravity centric place because of the centrifugal force where we meet this villainous uh commander griffin the american who has used gravity to set up a pool table in, in this room yeah at the center of it is this octagon yeah shrine to sports and as it says in the in the summary, like Nathan's there because he fired Hubble, which was the U.S.'s space cop, and he wants to get some more space cops on these U.S. stations. But uh, both Griffin and the U.S. State Department are not down with international policing. They're not interested in helping out, and they're not going to put a cop on this on this space station. And this is consistent with what we've seen since episode one. They have sort of slowly kind of peppered in that the Americans are having some conflict with the rest of. Uh, the international countries that are in space because they've been doing things like clearly setting up military bases and pretending they're not military bases and at the very least not cooperating with other countries. So they've already kind of set this tension up in, in some ways. Isn't the whole thing where the English guy and the and the the British guy and the American guy are both very much friendly to each other, but very, very quickly you can tell the, and just when they are, everything's going on, they're having a great time. They've established their differences, but that they're good with it. The American guy brings up his beef, right? And he's like, you know, you got this Russian promoted two years earlier than you should have. And that's a problem for us. And it wasn't really his turn yet, right? We all take turns internationally and you push the Russian ahead of us or, you know, quicker into the line. And I mean, that is kind of the side plot of this episode is that back on that moon base. And Jeff, you won't know all this, so I'll fill you in a little bit, but clearly you picked up on most of it is a couple episodes ago, there was a French-based commander who basically endangered people's lives to test his uh, cryonics technology, and they basically got him fired. And what we're seeing is he's been replaced by this Russian-based coordinator, a gentleman named Dr. Alexander Krivenko, uh, who specializes in space medicine. And this is is sort of where the push and pull between Nathan, our British space cop, and the American commander is, is that, like, the Americans knew the Russians were up next, but because Nathan got the French guy fired, they didn't have time to prepare for what they assume is just going to be a sleeper agent. They just assume if Russia's sending someone up to coordinate, he's going to be a spy of some sort. And they're not ready for that yet. And so they don't want to involve the star cops because they can't trust the star cops. And, yeah. and essentially, in, in this world in 2027, the Cold War is still going, going on. Strong. Yeah. Raging. Yeah. And he's like, we police our own. You know, like that was nice of you to help out and stuff, but that was our problem. So like keep out of our problems. And that's sort of like where it spikes the tension between those two characters. And, and it's sort of like, like it really resonates the politics with the character, right? It becomes yeah. a personal thing. Like you did this to me, you know. And this this uh, Dr. Kravenko, the new co- coordinator, he, like we'll see him throughout the episode. His sort of subplot is he's he's just started. He really wants to learn all the all the interworkings of this moon base and he's really hanging around the star cop office and mostly with divas because divas is the one left to work at the office but they all are a little like he's overly friendly he's a little too inquisitive they're all very suspicious of him from the get-go even the star well it is an interesting thing luke because nathan at one end is having to defend this decision to have the british decision to have this guy be part of the team against the americans but at the same time his whole team is very wary of the guy so it's sort of like putting up the political face you need to and at the same time being like i do kind of agree with him but i can't publicly agree with him yeah 
And like back in the Stark Ops office, this Krichenko, he's like, he's, he really wants to know, like, how do you solve crimes up here? Let me give you a hypothetical crime. What if somebody was kidnapped for political reasons? Well, what would you do about that? And at that exact moment, uh, old Dilly Goodman calls the Star Cops report her brother missing. And they, like, immediately equate the two. The Star Cops are like, mm, weird that you gave us a hypothetical that is not ex- really exactly much like this well, case we got. Well, to be fair, it's a very odd example to bring out of nowhere and then have that exact thing happen. Do you know what I mean? It's just, like, it's too coincidental. And I think he even kind of plays it almost like that sort of, like, mustache twirling sort of way of, like, oh, wouldn't it be interesting if that happened? Oopsie-daisy. <laughs> I loved it. That is the tone they're trying to say. It's like, isn't this a weird coincidence? Maybe this man can't be trusted. I lo- I loved it. It was such like a it, it was such a a fake out. I mean, you it spikes the whole thing right away with like who's on whose side. Again, if you're coming mm-hmm. in cold episode three and four, you're like, oh, this must be a big thing thing about this show. It's like the intrigue of the murder mystery of it all. Like who's who who done it here? I think you're right though, uh, Jeff. And it's it's interesting. This episode, I think intentionally or otherwise does a better job of setting the tone of what this universe is than the other episodes simply through not worrying so much about the mystery and the plot of a murder or a terrorist plot or something but focusing on the actual interpersonal differences between not only people on the same team but these international countries and i think you do get a better sense of this world and and i i felt the same thing i thought this was a much better episode and I feel with the characters too, like that's what the the show reveals itself really to be in this episode, I think, is like this is about people coming to terms through their differences and through conflict, right? Like, I mean, there's healing through this. So, you know, like no guns, you know. <laughs> um, but yeah, Dilly gives them her case and they're immediately obviously suspicious of the Russian and this all seems to be weirdly political. So they don't want to use calm channels and to kind of build that character art for Kenzie, they send her off to the Reagan to meet with uh, Nathan to fill him in on this missing persons case. And essentially what they've found looking into it is that it, it seems odd. Like perhaps there's something else going on with the case. Maybe it's a Russian conspiracy to drive up some sort of international tension. They're not sure. But essentially uh, Goodman is found to have no records. Like there's not just no records of Goodman on the Reagan they look into his school records and there's never been a Goodman at Caltech or MIT. Like there's just no record of this man anywhere. And as Nathan points out, it is a little bit of shoddy detective work because he's just like, wait, are you telling me there's never been a Dr. Henry Goodman there or never been a Goodman at MIT? And they're like, a Goodman. He's like, all right, well, clearly somebody has just scrubbed all the Goodmans out of the case. I like the idea, though, that uh, let's say you're, you know, some villain or some sort, and you, you give it to your henchman. You're like, here's the deal. I need you to clean these records, get rid of this guy. And he's like, yeah, I'll do it. And they just clear all the records. And it's just like, you've just done a terrible job of of the just, one thing easy. you had to do. Control F, Goodman, yeah. delete. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the show almost, like, lets you know that it's smart right away so you don't have to worry about it. Like, it, it it's... It, in episode three, it doesn't do it, but in episode four, very much it does, where it puts a lot of one up on itself, where it introduces something, then trumps it, then trumps it, then trumps it. So you stop trying to one up the show and you just start watching it, right? Yeah. And you you just are like, okay, let's watch this thing try to outdo itself, right? Um, which is great because every time exactly now it's like, oh, what a coincidence. You're here to investigate this casual thing and casual things going on. And this thing just happens to happen. Right. So it just loves, I think, to just throw a ball in just to see how many balls it can it can hold in the air. 
And now we've got Kenzie and Nathan on this ship. And, you know, we've seen the animosity, but they're forced to work as partners now. And, we can, you know, that it, it kind of builds their characters out. Like, uh, the Commander Griffin really wants to f- aggressively flirt and touch uh, Kenzie, which I'm just like, oh, this is this is bad news right he's, here. He's a real very, creeper. Very handsy. But essentially, he invites her to play a game of pool, so that gives Nathan a chance to snoop around while they're doing that. Although, and this is just for Jordan and the listener, since we just watched this TV movie, Kenzie's Australian, so I assume they played knuckleball, right? <laughs> Hard knuckle? <laughs> Hard knuckle, that's what it's called. What, what, I love that. That's a, only interesting for the two people who listened to the previous episode. <laughs> uh, Jeff, Hard Knuckle was a TV movie about Australians in the post-apocalyptic future playing pool. Oh, Thanks. So I just couldn't help but think about that. At any rate, this distraction basically allows Nathan to snoop around the commander's office. He It's all for naught. Like, he looks around his computer, but there's still no records of this Goodman character anywhere. And all this really leads to is that he looks around, finds some information, and then he forgets his box on the commander's desk when he leaves. Which is very funny, because the box is, like, talking out loud saying, Hey, uh, you're forgetting me on the desk. Don't leave. <laughs> I'm still active or something, right? Obviously, lots of times people, you know, they forget their maybe very expensive sunglasses or cell phone or whatever. But they've made the point now several times that this thing is like a one in a million item. You would think he would just never let that out of his grasp. And he's so casual with it. Like, he just goes to sleep and leaves it on the wall. And he's like working. It's just in the background. It's like, man, this thing's priceless. Don't don't just leave it in a room. His dad gave him a one, right? It's a, to- a, a token from his father, right? Yes. The only one he has. That was a you know ahead of its time you know like word of God type thing right like this thing will solve like this is Google in your conversation you know the person in the room who knows just too much right and you left it there it's very it's very funny it, it is a little awkwardly staged uh, and doesn't quite well, I think maybe maybe Kenzie threw him off his game what it was he, he's so frustrated with her he just got distracted <laughs> maybe that's what it is I'm starting to like this woman I can't fix straight <laughs> <laughs> Uh, while this is happening, though, Thoreau has gone down to Earth to do his own investigation into the Dilly Goodman character. And what we see is he goes down to that house in Colorado, finds it completely empty. And, and we get those classic shots of like the POV camera from the woods, like someone's watching him. And uh, that someone sneaks up behind him and karate chops him in the throat. Knocks him out. Way more effective than 12 shots of an exploding warehouse. It's very funny. That was very much of its time where you would get karate chopped into unconsciousness in a sci-fi show. I was like, oh, wow, they've got the, uh, what is that, the the Vulcan grip or something? Yes, yes, the, ner- the nerve pinch, is that yeah. what it is? Yeah, yeah. I assume it was some future one-hit thing that now everybody knows how to do. Yeah, if you know, go to the right schools, you'll get this, like, karate chop that's really good. <laughs> but... Essentially, this guy who's knocked Kenneth unconscious during his investigation, he's he's one of Griffin's men up on the space station, and he was sent down there to kind of take care of this sister, Dilly. And he we get a scene where, like, kind of one of the few scenes where we are leave our main characters and we actually get to see the villains talk about their plan. And essentially, they're now are like, okay, if the Star Cop sent someone down here, they are on to what we're up to on the Ronald Reagan. I think we need to change tactics. Like, they're getting way too close to the thing we're trying to cover up here. And kind of like they do in some of these episodes, the villains are, are maybe a little too eager to uh, give in. This time they at least lay it out a bit better. The idea that like Griffin's like, ah, they're too close. We better like try to get this done. So he's just like, I'm going to try to make a deal with this Nathan guy. And hopefully we can cover this whole thing up. And so essentially what we see is Griffin goes to visit Nathan. He's like, oh, you left your box on my desk. I thought I'd just return it and ask if you wanted to talk to me about something. I kind of liked it. I, th- I thought the character was like, he sort of, 
knew when he was beat. So it's like, well, I'm going to make the best of this situation. And I think I can negotiate something. I'm going to lose still, but I can get something out of this. Yep. Yeah. And his his plan basically is he he says tells Nathan he will make sure that he can get three space cops assigned to the Ronald Reagan if the Goodman investigation just goes away. Just forget about this Goodman investigation. I'll get you your three-star cops. And it's funny. I, I couldn't tell how this was played. Like, Nathan agrees, and I thought, oh, so he's going to take this deal and work the politics of it. But then he also seems confused that he was making a deal afterward. Like, he didn't know what was happening. I was a little confused. But essentially, Kenzie has her own plan because she videotapes basically this, like, illegal offer being made and then uses it against Griffin to be like, I learned this from my teacher, Nathan, to secretly videotape people and blackmail them. So let's do this instead. Well, I thought I, I thought that that was – wasn't that um... – they went. They had a plan, right? They they. Okay. Do you think so? They were working they ran together. On it together. That, that's I what I mean. So I think that was the uh, whole point. Is like that was that was Britain and Australia coming together over their differences to beat to beat the Americans. There's one thing they can get along about. It's, is, it's is fuck. Take it down the Americans. You know, we're gonna have a cigar after this, but it's not with that <laughs> asshole. You know what I mean? <laughs> All right. Well, so I must have I misread the scene for sure. But essentially, what it happens now is he's like. Griffin just gives in. He explains everything that happened. Like, Dr. Goodman was on the Ronald Reagan, but he was doing banned biological warfare research on a, quote, space bug. It's like a virus. I could tell that they were in cahoots when she started to throw her feminine wiles at him, right? And they were leaving the room together. He was getting all handsy, and we could tell that it, that it was inappropriate. But then Kenzie was playing into it, and we know she knows how to take advantage of a situation which is what right, right. our lead character is not a huge fan of is that she is corruptible that way and then what he learns about her and you know what she always believed about herself is that she was doing it for the right reasons right she has, she has a certain skill set that can be put to good use use exactly and so this is this is him realizing you know how they can work together you know they both realize it how they can work together let me mention one thing though the recording she takes in the future with all their technology is a terrible terrible recording it just looks awful and i'm like this is this is what you're blackmailing the guy with it's all like grainy and terrible well it looks like the door of the explorer i mean i feel (laughs) i feel like that was a setup for a future episode where you realize that that pr thing is not going to be a pr thing you're going to realize that it's they're using it for they're setting that up like it is a pr thing so they can use it in a different one to reveal that it isn't you know what I mean? Oh, you think they're seeding more and more to come. That's the one thing you learn. I think you learn just from those two episodes, really, is like, and as you're pointing out in this conversation, it's like we saw Kent, you saw Kenzie once in the first episode, and here she is come full term on the team by the fourth. So maybe this, you know, technology thing. And- they are very good at seeding future plots. That's that's 100% sure. So like for you to see that, it, it could very well be true because they're the creator's very good at that. Jumping back to this sort of space bug, um, Basically, Griffin pulls out an old USB he's storing in like a closet somewhere. And it's like, here, watch the security camera footage of basically Dr. Goodman accidentally releases the space bug in his module. He dies. The most hilarious death. The, the act, poor actor is just like, oh, I'm dead now. I like, though, that they have it ready. It's like whenever they need a laugh, they just pull out that USB. They're like, hey, you want to watch old Goodman die again? It's pretty funny. <laughs> it's dark. Uh, fun, fun side note. The trivia for this episode at IMDb. There's one trivia piece that was like, this actor found it very painful and uncomfortable to be strapped in and floating in zero Gs. I'm like, which actor was that? I scrolled up. I'm like, the guy who played Goodman, he was in like 30 seconds of the show. <laughs> That's what, that they're like, cut him. He's too much of a whiner. He can only float once. <laughs> but yes, they, they basically now know he died of the space bug and Griffin had the entire module sealed, shot into space, and then he 
essentially bribed Hubble, the other corrupt cop they fired last episode, the American, because they're, you know, pals, they're Americans, to essentially cover up that Goodman was ever anywhere in space. This is where that corruption came in that we saw from the previous episode. This is why they don't want to put another space cop up there. They used to have one. He was corruptible. They don't want a straight-laced space cop. This is kind of the whole plot of this. Is like they had to cover up some illegal weapons research. They didn't have their man on the inside of the Star Cops, and now they don't want to play ball with the Star Cops anymore. Yeah. And it's not Goodman's sister. Well, that's it. They they thought they'd gotten away with it. They were sure they did because he was Goodman was uh, solo. They didn't think he had any family who could track him down. They're like, but th- this sister came out of nowhere. And Nathan's just like, I don't think it is his sister. <laughs> yeah, well, that's basically it was. Even though they did a kind of sloppy job of clearing the records, they basically thought, well, he doesn't have any family anyway, so no one's going to look for him. So even if we were messy about it, it doesn't matter. And then, then the sister came out of the blue and started looking into things, and what you find by the end of the episode is it's not actually his sister. Well, I really liked this about the show, and at the end of the episode is, you know, there's people just as smart as, if not smarter than the space cops. You know, there's there's other things out there that, you know, that are a threat, like there's a threat out there. If not, you know, a challenge. We can talk about that a little too, because what happens is, Everyone's very concerned that this Dilly is maybe a Russian plant trying to expose this American thing to, like, seed seed trouble. But what it kind of comes out is Dilly is actually a reporter, an American reporter who changed World her name. World Press Association is who she works with. She changed her name to Dilly Goodman in order to, like, pull this scam. And, and at the end of the episode, she confronts basically some government officials and Griffin who are trying to still cover it up. She like walks them into the middle of a press conference where they realize the whole the whole thing the whole cover ups exposed and they've all been exposed with this, for this biological warfare. I thought that it was really well done. I mean, it, cheesy as it was, it was really well done. Where you know they were walking almost like it felt like off of a flight, right? And they're mm-hmm, all walking exactly. in mm-hmm. cahoots together. And she's saying like, "Well, gentlemen, that really worked out for all of us, didn't it?" And they're like, "Yeah, yeah, that was great. We all did great things." And then she comes around. She's like, "Yeah, tell me more about those great things." And to this camera and these other reporters, I'm <laughs> Betty Dennett. I'm April O'Neill from Channel Six News. You know what I mean? And I wasn't really Dilly. I was this other person the whole time. So it was kind of this. At first, you know, when there's they spike the whole story with, is it the sister? Is it not the sister? Like. Is it Mrs. Mulberry? Isn't it? Like, is there a Mrs. Mulberry? Like, is this Chinatown in space? What is this? You know? So, right, right, right. So it's really great because it, it's very shadowy and it really plays to the lighting actually in this um, episode, which was not a thing in the previous episode. There's a whole episode that's only backlit and they're in darkness uh, at one point, um, two of the characters. And it's very, sh- it really plays on the shadowy and the espionage, which I think, you know, isn't that what all space movies really are? Is there about it's about submarine stuff? You know what I mean? I mean, it's certainly more of a noir style this episode than previous episodes have absolutely. been. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, circling us back to those space salvagers who we saw at the start, they kind of come back in at the end here because they get back to the moon base. They show up in the space, the Star Cop office, and I guess when you get some salvage, you have to register it, make sure nobody else owns it, and if no one else has reported it missing, it's your salvage, baby. Payday. Mm. We don't know who they're selling it to. I'm assuming Ferengis, but uh, someone's <laughs> buying it. And it's it's really smart. That's where the show like shows you, like, no, 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 we thought about this, so stop worrying about this, right? Absolutely. And Divas is still there with this Dr. Kravenko, who we're all still suspicious about it. Does this leak of the Americans' cover-up have anything to do with the Russians? 
And we kind of get this sequence at the end where the salvagers show up. They're like, we got this thing. Divas is like, nobody's registered. It's all yours. Grab your blowtorch and cut right into it. You can take whatever's inside. And we, as the audience know, it's full of biological weapons. So we see them in a hangar starting to cut into it. And as they're about to like break into it and theoretically release a biological agent onto the moon, uh, Dr. Kravenko sort of steps out of the shadows and says, oh, hey, isn't it odd that this welded from the outside? Maybe we shouldn't open it and essentially diverts the uh, catastrophe. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. But also implies that he knows more than he's been letting on this whole time. So we are not sure if he's good or bad or if he's in the middle or what his uh, uh, intentions will be as as the series progresses. Mm -hmm. And I was a little confused by this because basically as it ends, the entire Space Cop team is like, well, that was very suspicious that he did that and saved us all, right? That's very suspicious. But Nathan's kind of like, I actually think it was just a coincidence because I know that the reporter wasn't working for the Russians. I, so I think maybe he just is like actually a keen investigator. So I didn't know where I'm supposed to fall on this. They leave it a little nebulous as to like, is he in on it? Or is he just like going to be a cool star cop? Well, and, and this is where I think it really saved itself. But that's the problem with the previous episode that it really doesn't be able to like the show is so smart that it tries to show you how smart it is at the end. Like, it, right. Uh, you know, at the end of each episode, there's so many like, is it, is it, or is it, you know, like there's a lot of that. And, and when you, I think the audience wants some sense of like, okay, I am as smart as the show, but I, I, you know, or I'm okay with it being smarter than me. But at the end of the, of the, each episode, such huge information and like stuff is thrown at you again in a challenge, but you're already kind of satisfied. You're already kind of like, oh, I, I feel like I've landed where the show wants me to land. Right, right, right. But then it does one more little like, or is it, is it, is it at you? And you're just like, okay, wait, wait. And it almost Pump extinguishes. the brakes. Yeah. It almost <laughs> extinguishes the great journey it just took you on. Well, I mean, that covers both of these episodes. So uh, maybe we should get into the writing of these episodes. And I just got to say, this series for us, this has to be the best episode titles of any series you've ever watched. I, I love the titles of these series. I agree. Let's do some ratings for Intelligence Listening for Beginners. That was the the first episode. Jeff, we do this out of like 10 stars. So uh, you can do it critically. You can do it by your enjoyment level. It's like totally up to you how you want to rate out of 10 stars for, the, for this. So uh, how, how would you, what would you like to give the first episode you watched of this? Well, all my stars are going to be on an enjoyment level because like fuck critique. I would say a, a six or seven. Which one is six, it? Six, seven, six and a half then. Six and a half. All right. You know what, Jeff? I'm giving it the exact same score. I think it's a six and a half. Like there's lots of fun, good stuff in it, but it is just like, it ends up being a bit of a convoluted mess, which is something we've seen this show do before. This is still not finding its legs this episode. It's a 6.5 as well. I don't know if we've ever had this happen, but I'm also going to get it a six and a half. So that's three for three. We all feel pretty much exactly the same about this. I think it's better than the first two episodes, at least in my opinion. But to your point, Luke, it hasn't quite found its legs. And I think... It does in the next episode. Yeah, well, let's let's do the rating for Trivial Games and uh, Paranoid Pursuits. Jeff, what, what about the second one? You seem to like it more, so I'm curious to see what your rating will be for the second one. Going from three into four, I think, just automatically bumps four score. It's just such a superior episode, you know, so it just bumps the score instantly. But as a standalone episode, I feel like I would give it a slightly lower score um, and only by half. So I'll, 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 I guess I'll have to say eight and a half. And I would almost just say nine automatically only because of everything in my head. Like, when was this made? Like, this was great. Like, I really enjoyed this. Like, I, and I felt at the end, like, I would watch this show, but I don't know 
if that was a result of having seen three and then gone into four. So I'll say eight and a half, eight and a half. I think it's a fair rating. Here's what I would say, and we've watched a bunch more of these than you, so I'm coming with a little more uh, information into these things, is this one is clearly when it's, this is the, the promise the show has had that I've liked so far. Like, I'm like, this show has promise, but it hasn't landed it. It's starting to come into focus now. I think one thing they did right this episode, which they tried to do in the previous one, but didn't do it quite well, is like, they focused on one crime, one mystery. All mm-hmm. the characters worked together on one mystery, whereas previous ones, they would have two disparate mysteries that barely dovetailed and like divided the cast even in the first episode, yes, it's mostly the like computer worm is the main thing, but the hijacking is kind of on the side and it sort of ties in, but not really. This episode, they're like laser focused. They're working on a single mystery. All the characters are involved in it. I, I think it's working much better. And I, honestly, I was gonna, probably going to give it a lower rating initially, but having talked about it with you guys, I think I've bumped, it's going to bump me up a half a point. I'm going to give it a full eight. I'm pretty close on this and uh, similar for all the reasons you guys mentioned. I think the show in episode four is the first time i felt like i understood why this show has a cult following which has developed over time and if you look up anything online on this show people have really good feelings and good things to say about it and after i watched the first few episodes i was like am i watching a different show like what is it that people like about it so much and then i watched episode four and i said i can kind of see it and if the show keeps going in this trajectory i can see why it should have maybe had a little bit longer life than it did but this episode again was not perfect but it was the best they've done so far so i'm giving it a seven and a half with a little room to grow (laughs) yeah i mean i don't know if it'll ever really reach the promise that's there but i can totally see i'm like i can see why this is getting like it's getting me hooked even though it's not Mm -hmm. perfect i'm like there's still a lot to like and like to percolate on and even if they don't nail it every time i like to imagine the best version of it in my head as i watch it anyway so like it's, it's drawing me in for sure only as as we're talking about this, am I starting to think like, what other British space shows? Like, wasn't there like, you've got obviously Doctor Who, Doctor Who, and then you've obviously, and then there's Red Dwarf, right? Because just looking at it in the visual of like, because you remember the guy's head, you know, was almost like the Red Skull or something, and right, and I just remember being like, what is that, you know, and really giving it a few honest shots and just being like, I'm not into this show. However, this show. I feel like if I if I had seen this at that time, I might have watched this show. I was trying to think of corollaries for this like kind of show even today and I it's so weird. This is just like it's its own unique thing that I can't think yeah. of anything that really is like it. And it's funny because in the first few episodes it almost felt like because of its uniqueness maybe that's the reason it didn't work it's like well, these two just two ideas this like noir in space just doesn't really work but then you watch this episode and you think oh no it it, it could work and maybe there was other reasons why it didn't uh it didn't have a long life but i think that about wraps it up you guys i think we've really broken down these two episodes um jeff thank you so much for joining us this week it was great to watch these with you i i, I you brought so much thought and insight into it i really enjoyed having this conversation with you oh, okay yeah thanks <laughs> and cigarettes yeah thanks for having me and listener uh on our instagram and twitter of course you will see some clips from this show there's going to be space rover driving a little miniature absolutely space rover driving around uh divas's five wives uh (laughs) that spaceship that spaceship the uh, the uh the gravity the ronald reagan you're going to see the ronald reagan the gravity yeah all kinds of great stuff and um Maybe you watched this show when it was on the air and you have fond memories. You can email us at continuumdragonjournal.com if you want to send us any any trivia you might know. But that wraps it up. So, uh, listener, thank you for joining us. And, Jordan, I'll see you next week. See you then. 
Continuum Drag is recorded in Toronto, Ontario. Theme music by James Rex Seedler, produced by Jordan Dulloch and Luke Black. Special thanks to Aaron Hughes.